welcome to Did You Eat Yet? I'm Jessie Chang. And I'm Grace Long. We're your hosts for this podcast. We believe every single person is created for a purpose. And the ethnicity, the characteristics and the personality you have all works together for that purpose. So join us as we have honest conversations about what it means to be Asian between cultures through the lens of Jesus. Welcome to another episode of Did You Eat Yet? Um, We have a really cool episode today and we're talking about climate change. Our guest today is Shilpita Matthews. She's all the way from the UK, which is really exciting because I don't think we've talked to anyone from the UK yet on this podcast. (laughs) But she's actually originally from India and grew up in a lot of interesting places like Sri Lanka, Jordan and Thailand. Um, she is an analyst and helps businesses address climate change, has done consulting and has a degree in environmental economics. Um, so welcome to the show. Thanks, Jesse. That's quite a long introduction, (laughs) but I'm equally glad. Do you feel a little bit embarrassed? (laughs) Um, yeah, it's great, uh, to connect with you and I'm hoping to learn a bit more through this podcast as well about, um, your perspectives and what the Asian church um, and the Asian community is doing in New Zealand and Australia. Yeah. You know, like this episode is about climate change. You have a lot to do with it. You're super active in this space. You're part of a lot of different organizations like the Young Christian Climate Network and Operation NOAA, um, which are all organizations that, you know, look at climate change from a Christian perspective. So... I kind of wanted to know, like, why did you first get involved with climate change? Sure, yeah. I guess my journey with climate change has been quite long-winded, where it's environmental effects and natural disasters have always been at the back of my mind. So growing up, um, particularly when we'd made the move from India to Sri Lanka, I was quite conscious of the kind of devastation that environmental disasters can cause that we just moved to Sri Lanka after the Asian tsunami. Yeah, as like a seven or eight year old, it was very shocking and very sad to see not just the kind of destruction that natural disasters cause, but also the inequality in terms of impacts, um, especially the communities at the front line of such disasters and how many years it takes to rebuild those communities and that's something that has always stayed with me throughout my years in different countries so when I did end up going to university and studying economics I wanted to use the skills that I was learning and apply it to this particular area and really think deeply of about what kind of solutions or tools we can come up to address these challenges which are only increasing over the course of time. So when you say kind of like you saw the effects of what that tsunami made and and you know that you're talking about the Boxing Day tsunami right? Yeah. Yeah yeah um I feel like that was one of in recent memory anyway the the tsunami that people remember apart from obviously a little bit later on in 2011 with the Japan tsunami and that was that was really shocking for a lot of people I remember yeah I was also very young as well but watching some of those scenes on television and things like that 
So did were you actually there after the tsunami to see to help out with um, the recovery process there? Yeah, so we had moved there because of my dad's job. So my dad is a charity worker and part of his job was um, helping out with the tsunami response, which is what took us there. I myself was pretty young. I was around um, eight or nine years old, but I remember accompanying my dad with a lot of the visits say, that he used to make and these would be just going to you know, temporary refugee camps uh, providing access to essentials like water or food or education to those that were effective and this was a very long drawn process which was quite immediate in nature but at the same time I think it's a story that keeps unfolding itself in ways that sometimes are not as obvious as say a tsunami so a recent example that comes to mind is actually the Syrian refugee crisis mm. and the Arab Spring and the emigration that has caused. And now that that's that's a that's a conflict that is very very complex. So I don't want to make any um, overarching statements, but one uh, or partial driver of that conflict has also been attributed to climate change in that a lot of the preceding droughts uh, in that particular region directly impacted things like food prices and the level of inflation in that country which um, is often directly related to political unrest and while these kind of aspects and links have been made by academics or um, aid workers for people on the ground sometimes it's quite complex to come to terms with especially if you're sitting quite far away from these crises or say watching it on the news or television to know uh, where to begin or actually yeah. where to address these issues yeah it's interesting that you mentioned like how it raises food prices and stuff like that because clearly that's going to hit people on the lower socio-economic scale the hardest and and I think that's what we find with climate change, that it is the people who are in poverty. And a lot of those people are from Asian countries as well that are part of that group that are affected the worst. But I don't know if you found this. Like, Do you find that maybe a lot of Asians don't necessarily engage a lot with climate change as a norm? Yes, 100%. I guess, firstly, what you said, I think it's the point exactly about marginalized communities being affected most. The marginalized communities often in developing countries, developing Asian countries, and within those countries, often the poor or women and children and groups which often are already facing these um, complex multitude of problems simultaneously. And... That is one of the reasons which we can see often means that climate or the environment is not a direct priority of Asian countries because there's an undeniable, say, conflict between environment and 
developments. Right. One mm. particular example is, say, pollution, and particularly the pollution of poverty. So if we take examples of countries like Indonesia and deforestation, say, in Borneo, and often a lot of these countries are going through a phase of rapid development, like China or India, which we per- perhaps already gone through in more developed countries and so it's harder to come to terms with these particular problems. Um, I had actually recently listened to a podcast from America. Uh, mm. I, I'm sure you might be familiar with it. It's called How to Save a Planet by Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson and um, I quite recommend it because there's one episode that talks about the Black Lives Matter movement and how it's intrinsically intrinsically related to the climate crisis yeah. and how climate justice and racial justice are linked, but often the communities which are at the forefront of these are just so perplexed by a lot of other complicated issues that climate is not at the forefront of their minds. Yeah, it's just... It, I think it's just hard because... I've heard it once described where in in New Zealand there was this um, Pacifica um, girl, so she was from the Pacific Islands, and she mentioned how, you know, she did care about climate change, but, you know, she didn't, she asked climate change activists and stuff like that, like how she could support the cause, and they're like, donate money, and she's like, well, I don't have money to donate because I'm just trying to provide for my family, and they're like, oh, well, if you can't donate money, donate your time, and she was like, well, that's hard for me too because I need to work a job to provide for my family, and so Mm. I feel like that kind of sentiment, yeah, it, it, it does exist, especially, you know, yeah, with Asian people on the lower socioeconomic scale, um, and I think it's just a hard tension, especially the younger generation growing up, learning more about climate change and stuff, and that being more at the forefront. We do know it's an issue, but how to get there and, and how to support the cause is, is a whole nother, I, I guess, bridge that some people find hard to cross. Yeah, and how to advocate for change and for causes that directly impact our own communities. So... For instance, I'd recently read ILO reports so by the International Labour Organization, which pointed how heat stress was going to impact Asia the most by 2030, particularly Southern Asia, and how that would have, I think, around a 5% impact on labour productivity. But what they highlighted was the people, so when they talk about quote-unquote labour, is... Um, low-skilled workers, so construction workers or people very much uh, in blue-collar jobs. And that's that's very difficult to expect them to fight for climate justice when they're at present um, facing so many economic or social injustices, uh, particularly to fight for a cause which often feels quite distant. So um, 2030, when often the problems that they're struggling with is, say, putting food on the table today mm. in the present. Yeah, really basic things, eh? Mm. So, like, how do we bridge that gap? Is there a way for us, particularly as Christians, to 
um, help people in that way and help them to also understand climate change, particularly the older generation who might not see climate change the way that younger people see it. One thing which I found um, quite helpful, at least in my own personal conversations, is broadening the discussion around climate change. So often when we say climate change nowadays, uh, especially the older generation or more, say, conservative or traditional Asian families think about activism. They think about people like Greta Thunberg or taking to the streets. And while those are very, very important things, I think we all can play a part in climate action where we are at. So one example that I find, say, in Asian families is if one raises that I'm interested in climate change, there's an automatic perception that perhaps you want to work in an NGO or say you want to start planting trees at church. And it's just so much broader than that. Um, personally, as say someone who does economics, so my day job uh, involves a lot of data and maths and things that Asian families actually value. And it's talking in those languages and how we can use those professions also to address climate change, whether it be mainstream careers like engineering or medicine, or actually thinking slightly broader about the action that we can take in churches. So here in the UK, the organization I'm uh, involved with, Operation NOAA, it, one of the main causes that it uh, champions is divestment in churches. So how churches can divest the money and assets that they invest in fossil fuels into more positive areas to say impact mm-hmm. investing and uh, at a personal level sometimes that just means seeing who you bank with or where the money that you're investing actually goes whether it is funding polluting industries or whether that same money could be invested and in supporting say green technology or renewable energy yeah because what do you do for your job I you know I said you like you're an analyst and I've I read your LinkedIn (laughs) (laughs) like I see it's like some economic kind of thing helping businesses with climate change issues and stuff like that but day-to-day what does that actually look like day-to-day it's actually quite fun it means working on projects often to design say climate policy So, um, for instance, in the EU, there's a European Union-wide emissions trading scheme, which um, essentially is an attempt towards carbon pricing. And uh, the ambition of a lot of people is actually making that universal, so extending that um, to other parts um, of the world. And I know that, for instance, New Zealand... um, has a similar emissions trading scheme and Australia is at least considered um, having something like this in the past. So it is uh, trying to design such policies and see how they can work most effectively in countries while achieving what they're intended to do. So reducing pollution as well as increasing climate ambition over time, but also in a way that does not hurt the economy so it does not hurt businesses or does not result in jobs being 
lost or people facing the brunt of it through higher prices and often higher prices that uh, kind of come down through the system so you see higher energy prices etc that's so cool it's such um it's such like a post 2000s job <laughs> this job wouldn't have yeah. existed 20 years ago you know what i mean like it's yes um, yeah. yeah and um i do i do think that these kind of jobs are quite traditional jobs are all more and more taking an environmental spin um, and the remit of what people do in every industry is often touching the environment and climate in their own unique ways but uh, definitely I often struggle to people um, to explain to people what I do for a living and um, <laughs> I think they often still think that I'm quite a traditional economist in the sense of say working in the government yeah. treasury or, or doing something like that. <laughs> so was it hard to explain to, I don't know, your grandparents or extended older family? Yes, I think um, initially it was quite hard uh, to explain, um, even when I was studying my master's, to explain what environmental economics in particular meant as a course. Um, but what I've actually helped, uh, uh, seen help at least, is... Um, linking a lot of this to faith so I come from a Christian family so both sets of my grandparents um, are Christians as well and I've shared some articles yes it is I've shared some articles with them that I've written or um, some videos where I'm talking about this topic and I think they're they finally see it because the one thing that I think has not changed over time is the Bible. And when we start opening, say, scripture and seeing what the Bible tells us about creation, about environmental stewardship, but also loving our neighbors, it's just so, so easy to make that connection with climate justice and a lot of these themes, which seem quite new and modern, but I think are age old (laughs) we're just gonna hit half time now and have our segment called controversial opinion um so for those of us joining for the first time this is where we put out a controversial opinion unpopular opinion and we discuss why we think that way. So today, my controversial opinion, I don't know if you're familiar with this and what it's like with the Indian culture, um, but in the Chinese culture, we have something called um, a hongbao, which is like a red pocket. Um, and Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah you know this? Yeah, and, this. <laughs> and, you know, during Chinese New Year or like at weddings or like at birthdays, that is normally like a gift that people will give you. So it's with money instead of an actual uh, gift. So my controversial opinion is that I prefer an actual gift over a hongbao. Fair enough. I mean, do you usually end up spending that money or do you just end up saving it? Well, because, okay, so here's the thing. My parents in New Zealand, because I grew up in New Zealand, we never really celebrated Chinese New Year in that way, so we never got Hongbao on Chinese New Year. 
on our birthdays, we didn't actually get presents because the the main reason was because like um yeah we when we were younger like times were a lot harder and there was four of kid us kids so my parents couldn't afford to get presents for all of us on every single birthday so it was kind of just like on your birthday you didn't get presents you just got cake which if that's the normal if that's what you grow up think like thinking is normal then you yeah you're not sad or anything (laughs) (laughs) and now growing up and being an adult and being like wow why do people why there's so many birthdays like i can't get presents for everyone (laughs) it's like are you the one who's giving people (laughs) it's like you know what i appreciate what my parents said you know i get it i get it (laughs) um and then at christmas we got each other gifts. So I never actually grew up receiving Hongbao. I only got Hongbao when I back, went back to Taiwan, which is where my parents are from and from my accent. But that was only like once every so often. And I oh know, I personally just find with gifts, sure, it can be hit and miss, but like hopefully at least a person did actually kind of think about what to get you. It's a lot more effort to get someone a gift, you know? They actually put an effort to think about what they're going to get you and then they went and got it i appreciate the effort like i respect that (laughs) (laughs) i hear you i think i i must say i do i do love um red pockets i have quite a few chinese friends i have received them from their parents before and i thought that was great (laughs) especially (laughs) makes you want to stay single forever (laughs) that's what it means to get this um and i i love it i mean um even in Indian culture, it's quite common to give money and actually for good luck. They often put a coin in, say, an envelope for a wedding cool. um, or a birthday. And I just think it's like the most economic and efficient <laughs> way of doing things. Because often these are relatives who probably don't know much about you or you last saw when you were one or two years old. So, um I sometimes end up combining a lot of these and then going on a shopping splurge at yeah. the very end of <laughs> a trip back home. Yeah, like I do have to put it out there, you know, in case anyone wants to give me a hongbao. Like I'm not expecting anything, but just in case anyone wants to give me a hongbao, like I will never refuse one. I'm just saying that I prefer gifts over a hongbao. <laughs> Point noted. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Okay. Um, so what about you then? Do you prefer actual gifts or like money? I say with people who are close to me, actual gifts mm. do make me smile, um, especially gifts, which I'm not expecting. But um, when it comes to meeting a lot of extended family, say when I go back to India, I appreciate receiving cash payments <laughs> only. Good time, good time. But well, that shopping's free. <laughs> what does the bible actually say about creation care and how does that link to climate change see in terms of god's word and its relationship with climate change i guess they're two aspects one would be around environmental stewardship and our mandate care for creation which has very much been at the forefront of the creation story so we see that uh, 
Genesis all through um, in, say, practices elaborated in Leviticus. Um, so, for instance, the concept of the Sabbath, which was um, introduced to not just give people rest, but also give the land rest mm, and yeah. allow for that pre period of um, rejuvenation and restoration of creation. There's a second aspect, which which I think actually links very, very deeply to climate justice, and that's around loving our neighbours and the call for reaching out to the poor and for reaching out to the oppressed, which in essence is what the climate crisis is about. But while there is a crisis, which is of global scale and global in nature, its impacts are very much disproportionate and are going to continue to be disproportionate Mm. in that they are going to be impacting the most marginalized people in society. And with those two aspects in mind, I think there's a very compelling argument for climate action as a key component in not just say our lifetime but actually as part of the entire salvation story in the bible for instance that we see in colossians is about god's ongoing work and reconciling all things on heaven and earth in him so not just us but all living things which includes creation and um, i very much uh see it as an invitation to be part of this reconciliation plan and broader salvation plan that god has for us and and when did you realize that like when did you make that connection i was always struck by the bible's call towards justice and it's partly to do with my upbringing as well see as i mentioned my dad's a charity worker and for a long time he actually um, worked for a christian charity And so in my household, I've always seen how his faith has been the main call to action, what gets him up um, out of bed every morning and to do the job that he does. And for me, when I approach the climate crisis, I automatically, I think, viewed it through that lens, through a lens that climate change is just exacerbating a lot of these ongoing problems that we have. So whether it be uh, growing economic inequalities with poor communities being impacted more by climate change or growing social or gender inequalities um, with women or minorities uh, being disproportionately impacted by the climate crisis. And that's one of the reasons why I'm quite passionate about it. And I see an urgency, which often I think is missed mm. at church when we focus on creation care and environmental stewardship, which is very important. It's, very, it's a fundamental uh, principle of um, recognizing that intrinsic value that God um, has shown his love towards all creation, but actually linking it to salvation actually jesus commandments to us Mm. would you say that there are 
you know, a lot of people in church or just Christians in general who haven't ever really thought about it this way. And they're just really not urgent when it comes to climate change. Yes, definitely. I'd say often climate change is seen as a intergenerational problem at best. So something that's going to impact uh, potentially generations in the future something a problem that's growing day by day over time but this is actually a problem which is quite eternal in nature if we go back to uh, what we were talking about previously and that's Christ reconciling everything towards himself the creation which includes us but also includes um all the living things which at present we know um are groaning for the time till um christ comes again um and i find that part in romans quite encouraging to know that it's not us who groan but it's the spirit and it's creation alongside us and we're all awaiting that time and making that link makes this so much bigger than an intergenerational problem but actually is something that uh, we should be actively working towards or um, seeing as part of our discipleship or mission during this time and I guess another hurdle would be the perspective that you know God's going to create a new heaven and new earth anyway what's kind of the point Yes, and that's a hurdle which... Does that annoy you? Does that perspective annoy you? (laughs) Actually, I would say that annoys me because actually that is a very, very common perspective, especially in Mm. the evangelical church. And um, there's one aspect which uh, I'm by no means an expert on. This is a theological aspect. Uh, So uh, particularly, say, if we look more into eschatology or the end of times and there's a compelling argument that God's ongoing work is about a new earth that is going to be a restoration and a renewal uh, in regression of where we live presently and there's a second argument around the sense of an eternal home and if we if we see that ultimate restoration as a restoration that's going to be part of an eternal home where this current creation and our current neighbors are going to have a fair share i think that is a no stronger um kind of argument towards climate action knowing that it's a restoration that we're working towards towards living in a new earth and actually um uh that's that's quite a vivid picture that's described in revelation as well a very um concrete and solid picture so not um clouds but actually a city where everyone's rejoicing together so i guess for you know Asians or or non-Asians, if you're listening to this podcast, um, and you're a Christian and you've never really thought about it this way before and you're like, oh, wow, actually, 
this is, you know, it's part of the what God wants to see in his children to care for others and knowing that climate change is linked to justice and all of this. And But I don't even know how to start with helping in this area. Like, what is your advice to someone who's maybe like really fresh in this area and has maybe feels a little bit overwhelmed with actually how can I help? There are lots of different steps that we can take uh, depending on where your journey lies. I guess there are three different elements that we start with the personal lifestyle changes. I'd say before any action, there's an importance of prayer and Mm. really repenting and lamenting for where we've come to. I think there's a grief globally, uh, I'd say despair around our planet and as Christians we can lament with hope say Mm. recognize our part in say overconsumption but also seek God's forgiveness and seek his call towards action and personal steps could be things like say changing consumption patterns so um, not just groceries but also things like fast fashion or using reusable items vegetarianism your energy use your transport use your recycling and a broader question of whether we're taking denying ourselves seriously and to what extent consumption has become an idol of a sort in our lives and broader than that uh, there are quite a lot of other second order actions at the personal level say Things like who I bank with, say banking with banks which have a commitment towards renewable um, and ethical investment or who I vote for or where my particular, say, university or workplace or church uh, invest in, whether that's an environmental friendly uh, environment. There are lots of different areas of that sort which in some ways can have an even bigger impact than uh, something that one can do more locally. The second aspect, obviously, is the community aspect. So I think as Christians, one great thing that we have is the church and the strength and the diversity that comes from the church and what action we can take within that community specifically. So in the UK, there's an example of divestment, as I've mentioned. A lot of churches are mm, thinking yeah. about divesting from fossil fuels. There are initiatives like EcoChurch run by um, organizations like Arosha, which is a certification program essentially for making churches greener. And um, outside of the church, there are also lots of networks. So for instance, I'm involved in a network um, of young Christians in the UK called YCCN. And uh, it's essentially a network of people um, in their predominantly 20s and 30s who are Christian, who care about climate action, and we're organizing a relay to Glasgow in anticipation of COP26, which is the global international climate change conference Mm -hmm. that's scheduled to happen in the UK this November. Thank you so much, um, Shilpita. Yeah, just for your story and and for 
yeah, sharing your insights into this area. It's really challenging and convicting, yeah, for me as well. Like even just research, researching this topic and yeah, hearing you speak and stuff about how it actually does relate to our faith, how climate change does relate to our faith. So yeah, I hope to everyone who's listening that you go away and really, I guess, meditate on what was said and, and think about like how your part in fighting climate change might look, I think. Yeah, and, and how that, you know, what God might be calling you to do in that space. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and um, I hope you've had a good time. <laughs> Thanks, Jesse. Yeah, definitely. This is a lot of fun. And I really enjoyed the controversial topic section as well. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad. Thanks for joining us today. This episode is brought to you by Season Asia of the Rice Movement, which is committed to championing the Asian voice. If you have any questions or comments on anything we've discussed, please drop us a line at seasonasia at ricemovement.org. We're also on Instagram and Facebook and we'd love to hear from you.